Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Daniel chapter 11, and we... The title last Sunday was Spiritual Warfare and You. And it was really neat because we read about angels and demons and you know, stuff behind the veil of our world of atoms and compounds and chemicals. You know, this, I submit to you, what we spoke about is the real world. You know, heavenly beings, God. Uh, we talk about angel, Gabriel, and Michael. And it's amazing stuff. Um, and how does it apply to our own life? So if you didn't get the message, you can get it free online. It's definitely worthwhile to check it out. Today we're going to be in some more history. The angel Gabriel is giving Daniel a tour, the prophet Daniel, and he's taking him through history before it happens. He's taking him on this tour. This is going to be the history of, or this is going to be your future. For us, it's history of your people. And he walks him through this. And listen, some people say, oh, Pastor Joe, it's early in the morning for history. I thought I got rid of this in, in high school. You're killing me over here. But I submit to you, this has a lot to do with who we are and what we believe. And, and i got to be honest with you, for those that you might be working with that are professionals or go to college with you and they kind of dig at you and they make fun, well, it's a fairy tale. Well, I'm here to teach you that it's not a fairy tale. So we could be in history this month. We'll, we'll be in Galatians uh, come January and and. You know, we'll, we'll go into Galatians, we'll talk about the one true gospel, uh, but, you know, we'll be in eschatology one time, we'll be in theology, but this, in this church we train people, because I've said it before, you know, I've talked about the culture, American culture, the breakdown of the culture, we're seeing it, a lot of strife in our country, a lot of division, and the Western church is going through a sifting as well. I believe that persecution is going to become greater. I believe our leaders in both parties could care less about Christianity, uh, save a few, and the church is going to go through a sifting. So in this church, we don't throw out platitudes and tell you every day to, to knock on Santa's door in the sky, and I say that facetiously, and tell them all the stuff you want. That's not what we do here. We train you because, as I said in the announcements, we are going to run into people that are going to taunt us, tease us, or some that are really searching for the truth. In 1 Peter 3.15, we, we kind of, not kind of, but we, we really need to have the answer to the questions that are thrown at us because we can win uh, people over to Jesus Christ for the truth. Um, we're going to go through this morning only 18 verses, and I'm going to take you, or the angel Gabriel is going to take you, from roughly the year 538 B.C. to year 000, right? And then after that comes 1 A.D., 2 A.D., etc., so he's going to walk, Gabriel's going to walk Daniel through this, and I'm going to walk you through it and explain it to you as we go through it. So leaving off, starting in chapter 11, verse 1. Now, again, I've said this, chapter delineations came later, not necessarily inspired. It was made it easier for the eye to see and break down different pieces of the Scripture. But this really goes with the former uh, chapter 10, but I'll read it anyway. It says, verse 1, Also, in the first year of Darius, the Mede, the king, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. So Gabriel is, is talking to Daniel, and he's having this discussion with him. And basically he's saying, 
you know, we, we had to do battle with the prince of Persia, the demonic uh, creature who was trying to control the Persian leaders, and we have to deal with the prince of Greece who's trying to control the Grecian leaders. Uh, but basically, you know, Gabriel's saying, myself and, and, and uh, the archangel Michael, you know, we did some battle, and, and we, conf- we stood up and we strengthened Darius to break the hegemony of the demonic beings to try to control the leaders of that world at the time. Again, if you get the message from last Sunday, it'll, it'll, it'll pick you up to speed. But check this out. Daniel is seeing things before they happen. I'm taking you through things that have already happened. So all we have to do is open up our secular history books and see that everything the Bible says has been confirmed. History's history. You can't play with history. It is what it is. Verse 2 And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. And by his strength, through all his riches, he shall stir up all all against the realm of Greece. So you have Daniel in the midst of of the Persian Empire. Now Greece is going to take over and... He talks about these kings of Persia who, who now there, there becomes a conflict with Greece who hasn't really taken the world stage yet. But basically, you had three kings after Cyrus. You had Cambyses, you had Pseudo-Smyrtus, and you had uh, Darius Hestaspes. The fourth king, the notable king, was Xerxes. Now that word Xerxes is actually a Greek word for king. And we can just play with etymology of words and stuff. But basically, um, just like the, the term pharaoh, Pharaoh wasn't, you know, Pharaoh Hafra, Pharaoh Nietzsche, historical men. It wasn't their name, like, you know, Joe so-and-so, right? Pharaoh was a title. He was the ruler of Egypt. Xerxes meant king. Ahasuerus in the Hebrew meant the same thing, right? So just to, to put, that's why you would have Xerxes I, Xerxes II, Xerxes III, because you have to differentiate which king you're speaking about. So Xerxes I is most likely the, the Ahasuerus in the book of Esther, See, it's my job as an investigator to put pieces of the scripture as a puzzle and show you the whole mosaic once it's put together. So Xerxes I, you go into your history books, is the Ahasuerus of the book of Esther. Now, all four kings were killed, and I'll come back to that. But (laughs) Xerxes pitted the Persians against the Greeks in a very long and bitter war, uh, opening up the framework for Greece to rise up and have a, a, a visceral hatred and vengeance towards the Persians. And that did happen under Alexander the Great. You had two extremely different cultures separated from a lot of land. You had Middle Eastern, what's modern-day Iran, which was the old Persian kingdom, against European Greece. You had the Persian monarchy against the Grecian representative government. Very different. Even the military styles were very different. Now, the historian Herodotus, and I'm just I'm setting you up here, because what I'm also trying to do is, again, when you're teased and taunted by people that you know or family members, you have answers for them. Let's walk through history. You really want to know if I'm, I'm following a fairy tale or not? Let's walk through history. Let's look at this stuff. Herodotus, the historian, says that the Persians under Xerxes uh, were defeated by the Greeks at Salamis. It was a place. It was a battle. And Xerxes sought consolation in his harem. Enter Esther 1 and 2. He has this beauty contest. You know, he's a worldly guy. He thinks of just a few things to satisfy him. And, well, he couldn't win in battle, so let me find consolation in my harem. And again, that's how the book of Esther opens up. I've chronicled the battles between the Greeks and the Persians. I'm not going to do that now. It's in former studies. 
but Xerxes was also assassinated in 465 BC. Now check this out. Again, let me just say this one last time. We, this is commensurate to the angel coming to you or I and saying, well, this is what's going to happen in 2020. Well, that's interesting. You got my attention. This is going to happen in 2030. This is going to happen in 2050. This is what Daniel's dealing with. So some of the stuff, he's, he's, I'm sure he's taking notes as he's listening, doesn't completely understand everything the angel's speaking about because it didn't happen yet. But Daniel was faithful, like Isaiah was faithful, like Jeremiah was faithful, like Ezekiel was faithful, and hopefully like we are faithful. You know, God needs people in this time too. This is, we are living in a very difficult time in our world and in our country. And the answers of the global community, I watch them posture in front of the cameras and, and just espouse things that's going to help humanity. And I just, man, the Bible is it's just so obvious, guys and ladies. But we need to be faithful too. Continuing verse 3. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity nor according to his dominion with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. So Greece, Greece rises up under Alexander the Great. The only thing great about him was he was a conqueror and a great humanist. As far as a godly man, he was not. And it's very suspicious in his, his death in his early 30s um, how he ended up dying. It was tragic, but this is, he lived a, lived a life of debauchery. But basically, before his death... Nothing could stop him. He was going to do according to his own will. Read about Alexander the Great. Even the Romans, when they conquered the Greek, Greeks still revered Alexander, and they wanted to be like him in many ways, including their military. The Romans copied a lot from the Greeks. But Alexander dies in 332 B.C., and his male heirs are murdered. Nice, you know? And we're going to talk about what it means to be at the top. Better be on your game if you want to be at the top, because there's always going to be people under you that are trying to take you out, trying to bump you off. And here's a guy, he dies, and they find his male heirs, and they, they murder them. So there you go. Uh, he had four generals, Ptolemy, Seleucus, Cassander, and Lysimachus, died up, divide up the Grecian Empire, if we could put up the map. This is a, a great map. Um, I found it. Uh, it, it. You know, if you could see real close, and you wonder what those words are, it's in German, okay? But, <laughs> but it was one of the best ones I've seen. So uh, basically you have this, this, this is the world at the time, right? This is Africa over here. This is Europe. This is the Middle East, and the Far East is over here, right around here. But basically what happens is um, somebody will say to me, but Pastor Joe, I know Antigonus was one of his generals, and he had this area over here. And you would, I'm sorry, right over here. And you would be right, but not long after Antigonus, uh, had that, the others, the other four, it wasn't long, that they, they destroyed Antigonus and killed him. And then they split it up into four. So Antigonus didn't last long. So this is what's going on. So you have the Syrian, you know, this is, looks, and this is modern day Lebanon, Israel, uh, Jordan, Syria. This is modern day Iraq. This is modern day Iran. And then you go into the further eastern countries. Uh, over here, you have, you know, again, the northeast quarter of, of Africa uh, that's run by the, what's called the Ptolemy line, P-T-O-L-E-M-Y. The Ptolemies ran this. And over here were the, the Syrian or the Seleucid line. 
Now, why is this significant? Because right here is Israel. And as you can see, this is a great map because Israel is covered by blue and yellow because the Syrian quarter and the Egyptian quarter kept, you know, Judea had some stuff in it, you know, the temple and there were things in there and uh, there was gold and wealth. So these two nations, even though they were Grecian, they started to war with each other. And uh, there was a, a time that the Ptolemies had Israel and then the, the Seleucids took Israel back, and you have this back and forth. Right over here is Italy, and this is the Roman Empire. So when we start to go further, we're going to talk about Cleopatra, we're going to talk about the Rosetta Stone, we're going to talk about a lot of things. The Alexandrian Library, that you might say, yeah, I've heard this stuff before. It's all biblical history, okay? It's God's history. Um, so you have what happened in, in uh, Egypt. Egypt uh, developed a lot of grain, and the, the Romans needed that grain. So there was this three-way kind of tug of war going on. You can leave that map up with those, those nations, but it's a great map. I love the map. So this is what you have early on. Now, before we move on to the... Because we're going to read about the kings of the north and the kings of the south. So you know, the kings of the north are the Syrians, the Seleucids, the king of the south are the Ptolemies or the Egyptians. Um, Alexander the Great did conquer so much, and he actually did impart a lot of Greek culture and the Koine Greek language and the Bible many years later was written in Koine Greek and it was so great because Alexander didn't realize he unwittingly helped to spread the gospel across the known world at the time through language. Interesting. So verse 5, then the king of the south shall become strong as well as one of his princes and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. So this is Ptolemy I Soter. He starts an impressive Hellenistic dynasty in, in Egypt. Uh, he founded the great Alexandrian library. Read about that. It took many years for it to be completed. It, it's, it's, it was a center of culture, of, of learning. Uh, many books and scrolls were in that library. And again, you go into uh, secular history, listen to my message if you're a skeptic, Going to secular history, you'll see everything I said follows with every one of these leaders and what they did. He even put, Soter put a strong structured hierarchy in place uh, for after he died. So he had set it up. And this starts the, the ball rolling between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids really sparring with each other vis-a-vis -vis Israel in the middle. The two other Greek quarters are really not mentioned because they don't have anything to do with God's people. So it's really not in the scripture. Verse 6. And at the end of some, some years, they shall join forces, for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the power of her authority. What happens to her? And neither he nor his authority, what happens to him, shall stand, but she shall be given up with those who brought her and with him who begot her and with him who strengthened her in those times. Sounds a little confusing. But basically, now we have a new king, Ptolemy II, Philadelphus, and Egypt. He gives his daughter, because there's just a lot of tension between these two nations. So what they did back then is they would give sometimes their daughters to be the wife of the other king, and they figured, well, that's going to keep peace because now we're family. <laughs> you know how that works out sometimes, but they tried it. <laughs> so Ptolemy gives his daughter Berenice to Antiochus II, Theos, to form a political alliance. The only caveat was that Antiochus in the north had to divorce his wife Laodice. She didn't take that very well in order to get Berenice. So, so Laodice is out, Berenice is in. 
Two years later, the Berenice's father in Egypt, he dies. So Antiochus takes his first wife, Laodice, back, who then poisons her husband because she didn't get over it. And uh, <laughs> she kills both Berenice and Berenice's son, who, who Antiochus and her had a child. Okay, as the expression goes, hell hath no fury like the scorn of a woman. I mean, I don't know what he said to her. Hey, baby, I'm so sorry about the Berenice thing. Would you come back home? Hey, this guy wasn't too bright, was he? Verse 7. But from a branch of her roots, Berenice's roots, one shall arise in his place, who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them and prevail. So Ptolemy three, there's a new king in town, there's a new sheriff in town. Uh, his name is Euergetes, and he's dealing with Seleucus II up north, uh, Callinicus. The new Ptolemy was the brother of the murdered Berenice. So he avenges his sister's death and his nephew's death by attacking Syria and finding Laodice, killing her, um, killing many people, and then taking plunder back to Egypt. There's a few things that I, I really want to say here. I don't expect you to follow this meticulously, but there's just some, some principles, some, some maxims in the scripture that we can go by. First of all, number one, everything that glitters isn't gold. Being at the top has its price. We read about assassinations, poisoning, stabbings, infanticide, fratricide, divorce. You know, it, it's just crazy stuff, war, you name it. You know, as the saying goes, me personally, I'm, I'm happy being just an average Joe. <laughs> I don't have a whole lot that people need to bump me off for, okay? It's, it's good. We'll keep it like that. But I, I just also look at this and say, really, nothing's changed in thousands of years. I mean, we look across the earth. We look, how many even American politicians would sell their grandmother, literally, for the position? And it's really a sad thing to watch. I wonder, are our politicians that are career politicians, are they really happy? Are they really content or is it just, an, it's just the power that they feed off of? Or to completely insulate themselves and then they don't need God? Again, I'm not saying every one of them. But I, I think when you get into politics, I think Satan has his best demons messing with those folks. Because sometimes I look at these laws and I look at the decisions and I think to myself, either I'm crazy or they have no common sense. You know, well, what, are, what are you doing in this country? What are you doing to us? Uh, so, the, the, I mean, look at even... Everything that glitters isn't gold. Look at some of the, uh, the actors and actresses and ballplayers. Look at the things that happened to them because of that fame and that, that authority and that power. And it, it just it can affect you in a negative way. The second thing is that the more we, we get deep, remember, this is history before it happens. The more we go into this in detail, those of us who have a relationship with him, I'm hoping that you're even more impressed with your creator because he's impressive, you know? I started reading this, and I'm like, oh, the king of the north, the king of the south, this one, that one. My eyes were crossing. But then I started taking out my books. I'm like, Lord, help me to just parse it all out, and it, it made a lot of sense. But I, I've grown to just be more impressed with my creator through this, that he can do this kind of stuff. Um, you know, this is the creator who wants to be involved in your life too, whoever you are. Well, I'm insignificant. It's 2015. All this, no, no, no. Jesus died for your sins too. You are significant. He knew about your sins thousands of years before you were born, and he went on that cross for you. So consider it. Consider working with him, because he, he wants you to. 
Three, there's a pattern here. There's this, there's these, I call them undulating waves of history. You, we're in some generalities in chapter two. We get more detailed in chapter seven. Now we get even more detailed in chapter 11. So there's just this, this very strong, um, you know, detail that God gives. And I just think it's an amazing thing how God prepares his people. The Jewish people who knew this stuff knew to stay away from certain things that were going to happen. They knew to prepare, right? Jesus prepares his followers about what was going to happen in the Roman Empire. The Apostle Paul prepared them. And when we read the Bible, it prepares us in 2015 for our future. Because I think the glory days of this country, quite frankly, I think they're over. I think that we're going to, especially as Christians, we're going to fall in very difficult times. So continuing in verse 8. And he shall carry their gods captive to Egypt with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold, and he shall continue more years than the king of the north. So Ptolemy III plundered so much, um, carries their gods. Well, back in the day, the pagans worshipped. They would take precious metals and fashion some weird gods, fish gods and bird gods and all kinds of, you know, Romans talks about that, worshiping the creator, the creature rather than the creator. Uh, And they would take these very precious things, not only sentimentally, but also um, financially. They carried them away. Uh, Ptolemy III got a lot of plunder. Uh, One source I read said that he took so much loot that he even took what the Persian Cambyses raided from them in Egypt many years prior than that. So, and we find these things. We find scrolls. We find, we're talking about the Rosetta Stone. We find proof. How do you know that, Pastor Joe? How do they know it? Because we find proof of it. They just, I just, they just found another, uh, just an article about Hezekiah and uh, his seal and his reign by, uh, I think, digging through again over in, in the Middle East and uh, somewhere in, in Israel. And like, wow, Hezekiah, it's not just the Bible story. Yeah, well, we know that. But it takes the world a while to catch up to it. You know what I'm saying? It's okay. Verse 9, then the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the south, but shall return to his own land. So Seleucus in 240 BC attacks Egypt, he loses, and returns back home. Verse 10, however, his sons shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through, and then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. So Antiochus III didn't do so good in the beginning warned against Egypt. But then he has a change of fortune, uh, partially through his career, and he starts to actually win these battles. His sons, they're probably hotheads, they flex their muscles, they stir up strife, they make a lot of noise, but they don't do a whole lot until we get to Antiochus IV, who's Epiphanes, and you know him from the Hanukkah story. Incidentally, Hanukkah, I believe, starts today. So it's so cool how everything's starting to coincide. And we'll talk next Sunday about the Hanukkah story, and why it's so important to the Jewish people, right? Even not knowing the Lord yet, it's very important to them. So this doesn't stop Antiochus. He, he goes on a conquest east. Apparently he gets all the way to India, as uh, Alexander the Great did. Um, and I'm just going to stop there for a minute and say, you know what, man's heart, and I say this for women too, man's heart is a restless heart without the Lord. It's a restless heart. And I'm saying to us here, listen, you might say, well, I'm not Antiochus. I don't, I don't, I don't even own my house, let alone a, a nation. But the unbeliever's heart is a restless heart. And your conquest may not be Egypt, but your conquest may be 
a new addition, another car, another SUV, another degree, another promotion. I see this. I see people get promoted. And they're so excited. And then the year wears off and they want to get promoted again. And it just never ends. And you just keep taking that money and degrees and, and achievements. And you just keep throwing it down this hole. And then you see it for a little while and then you look down the hole. It's like quicksand or it's like the incinerator in your sink. And you look down and it's gone again. So you've got to find something else to throw down that hole. It is what it is. And what people don't realize who don't know the Lord is that the only thing that's going to fill that void is God. And God in the new dispensation through Jesus Christ. So this is what's going on. I mean, did you ever stop and think what drives you? Even as Christians, sometimes, you know, we can do this too as Christians. We can say, okay, good, I'm going to heaven. That's the goal. It's not the goal. The goal is to live for the Lord, is to have a relationship with him. And I see Christians who have a, a restless heart. They're always restless. And it's, you, you really, the Lord is the only puzzle piece that's going to plug that hole so you don't feel that void anymore, right? If everything ended tomorrow, could we really go before the Lord and say, you know what, I was content, Lord. It was me and you. We were thick as thieves. We were like this, Lord. Could we say that? What are we doing with our lives? What are we doing with our conquests? And, and when is it enough? You know, I have to say this. Uh, I'm very reticent, very reticent to talk about celebrities, famous people from the pulpit who claim to be Christians because I believe there's tremendous spiritual pressure. There's demonic attacks. There's temptations. And a lot of them, they succumb. And it's a sad thing. And now it's, on, it's on the recording. What do I do at this point? You know, I've got to erase it. After, Pastor Paul's got some great uh, stuff back there that he can work with. But I don't want to do that. I don't want to say it too soon, but one person that, you know what, is the real deal is Tim Tebow, the ball player. Now, is he the best ball player? No, he's not. Because his parents instilled in him such a great faith that even his faith in Christ supersedes his ball playing ability. It is what it is. He probably could be the best ball player, but maybe at the expense of his faith. You might have read the paper that he was dating a Miss America and she dumped him because he wouldn't have sex with her. Let's just be honest, it's right there in the papers. What she doesn't realize is he's not rejecting her, he's trying to honor her. And he's saying, I'm, I'm, I won't do that until I get married. And if he's in the area, let me know. I'm going to beg the guy to talk to our youth and our young people. Because that's a person that you can look up to. You know, people brag about their kids all the time. And my response is, where's their walk with the Lord? My son knows. I want him to get good grades. But if his grades suffer a little bit, because his walk with the Lord, it's affecting his walk, I prefer that he goes with his walk with the Lord. Because all the education, all that stuff, it's great for a time, but it's only relegated to this human life. God could create a new heavens and a new earth with new physics and new chemistry and stuff that we'll never use again. That's his prerogative. So, verse 11. And the king of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with with him, with the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into the hand of the enemy. Ptolemy 4, Philopater, and Antiochus 3, the great. Again, this is not Antiochus Epiphanes. We're going to cover him next Sunday. Uh, Ptolemy 4 defeats Antiochus 3, and these were always short-lived, these battles. You know, It's sad. New children would be born, and they didn't know that their fate was to join the military and die in battle. It's so sad. I mean, these, these men who have these big aspirations don't consider the grieving mothers and who, who lose their, their boys in the battle. I mean, I, I, try to take it, I try to take the whole picture in when I can. Verse 12, 
When he, tasks, when he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. Ptolemy 4 wins against Syria, oppresses the Jews, his own people, then he steadily declines. 12. For the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former, even more soldiers, and shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. So Antiochus the Great, or three, he's pretty smart. He actually contacts uh, Philip of Macedon, Philip V, with this huge army, and he attacks Egypt, and he prevails against Ptolemy V. He prevails. Verse 14. And in those times many shall rise up against the king of the south, also certain violent men of your people. Now remember, the angel speaking to Daniel, so your people must mean this is where the Jewish people come in at this point. Um, the violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. So Jewish zealots, Jews are, are really cool people. You know, they're very peace-loving until you push them to the point where they have to fight. And then they'll fight. I mean, look at Israel. But um, Jewish zealots back Antiochus, but God doesn't allow them to prosper in their political alliances. The Jews actually think that backing Antiochus against Egypt will fulfill a vision for a free and autonomous Judah, but it doesn't work. God has always allowed his people, he's always, <laughs> I look at our country too, when his people start pulling against God, he'll remove his protective hand. You're on your own. You got borders, and there's people all around you. You don't need me, you, you reject me, you kick me out. I mean, seriously, is, is God mean? No. It's a relationship, Right? If you are unfaithful to your spouse, do you really think that that spouse is going to act the same to you while you're doing this? God's that way. He's like, listen, I'm God. You know, I'll give you whatever you want. I'll make you successful. I'll, I'll bless you. I'll, but don't, you know. And, and they did. And they didn't consider him. And they throw their lot against fighting Egypt, and it takes its toll on the Jews. I want to say this as well. I recently counseled somebody about political alliances. A young person and political alliances. We do this sometimes. Sometimes we do this in our jobs. Some people are politically motivated. They get to know the mayor or they get to know the council person, and that's fine. Are you trying to lead them to the Lord or are you trying to use them so that you can call in a favor later on? Watch political alliances. See, the Jews had a history of sometimes giving money to the Syrians. Hey, we need, we need battles fought and we're, we're losing here. Was it Asa or Abijam, well, I'll cover that in 1 Kings 15 on Wednesday, uh, or they'll, they'll employ the Egyptians. You know, again, you, what, I, I love Egypt today, I don't like Egypt next year. This is the way the world was. So they would employ these mercenaries, and, and the Jews would say, help us fight our battles instead of going to God first. And they would, they would get hurt. So how does that apply to us? It's amazing how we can take the scripture and go, that's not me, but there's an application for you and everything in the scripture. And for me too. And I got to tell you, even early in ministry, maybe unwittingly, I, I thought, well, this person could be really helpful and really could give me a break. And when you start to put too much in that crutch, God will move it. And I fall on my face a few times and I realize I need to go to God first. Watch political alliances. It, you know, it's, it's, it'll bite us. It really will. You love Bob and Fred today. Next year, Bob and Fred are trying to cut your legs out from under you. So you go to Joe and Jane, and then Joe and Jane take you off, and you can't do that. So it doesn't just apply to these warring factions. Watch that. Go to God first. Let him have your back, because he always will.
verse 15. So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound, more detail, and take a fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops will have no strength to resist. So this is really the battle of Panium, where there was a besiegement where uh, Antiochus III besieged the Egyptians and the Egyptians surrendered in 199 BC. So Antiochus III actually successfully used the cataphract. It's a big word, but basically they didn't have tanks. We could put up the image too. Um, this was, you would take your animals, like the, you know what all that shiny stuff is? It's armor. Somebody took a long time to weave that together. Not only is the rider armored, but the horse is armored. You know, we, my wife and I, a few, few doors down, we have a, there's a horse farm. And I tell you, some of the horses, are, they look so pretty eating in the field. Then when you get close, they're monstrous. They're, tr they're just mountains of muscle. Uh, actually, one time, the, uh, one of the owners spooked the horse, and he kicked, and he broke in half. He snapped this, like, two-by-eight piece of fencing just with one kick because the guy spooked him. And they're just incredibly massive beings. So if you're going into battle and you see a bunch of horses with armor coming towards you and you can't slice the horse and you can't put an arrow through the horse, you're in trouble. <laughs> so, you know, I just love every once in a while to put up these images and, and show what, what life was like back in the day. So the cataphract was successfully used by Antiochus III in the besiegement of Egypt. 16. But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land, uh, Jerusalem, with destruction in his power. Antiochus III showed great favor to the Jews, but uh, in using the Jews to help him win his battles caused a lot of death, a lot of disease, a lot of poverty, and a lot of loss. Because again, the Judaites relied more on man than God. And what we find, too, is this tremendous difference between Antiochus III and Antiochus IV. Antiochus III really liked the Jews. He showed them favor. He appreciated their, their sacrifice. Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, was the evil person who desecrated the temple, went on a, a, a robbing and murderous spree, and, and hated the Jews. Father, son, big difference. Again, brothers and sisters, this is the way the world is. Watch your alliances. One day they love you. The next day, they hate you. God, he's the one that we need backing us. So this is, you know, this is the world. Um, Antiochus III eventually stands in the glorious land, but the destruction is, is the fact that his campaigns brought destruction to the Jewish people. Verse 17, he shall set his face to enter. Antiochus III ruled a long time. So you find there's a few Ptolemies that went through, you know, again, assassinations, sicknesses, um, usurpments, coups, whatever. This is the way it was. Verse 17. He shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and, up, and the upright ones with him. Thus shall he do, and he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or be for him. So after these long wars, again, they, these guys have this bright idea, let me give my daughter to you as the king, and you marry her, and we're family again. So this was tried again, a peace treaty, and his daughter was Cleopatra I. Well, there we go, a little history there. Now, Cleopatra was also a title. There were seven Cleopatras. The one that we're familiar with is Cleopatra VII. So this is the Cleopatras are just getting warmed up in the bullpen. So Cleopatra I, she's, she's the first one, she marries this guy, and 
The word Cleopatra literally means the glory of her father. Hold that thought. So Antiochus gave his daughter, I'm sure he had a little pep talk with her. Now listen, you know, you're going to spy for me. And, and seriously, that's what he tried to get his daughter to do. However, she becomes more loyal to her husband than she is to her father. So I guess the name glory of her father didn't last long. <laughs> because what they do is she hooks up with her husband and seeks protection from the Roman Empire that was just getting started at the time. They were just starting to gain prominence in the, in the ancient world. Rome, again, imported grain and certain things from Egypt, and they were not going to allow Syria to disrupt that. So Cleopatra actually becomes this common thread between the Syrian kingdom, the Egyptian kingdom, and the Roman kingdom. I want to tell you about something that I find very fascinating. Again, you, you, kinda, you go into some of the writings and you look into the minds of these leaders. The, the, the Ptolemies were not ethnic Egyptians. They were Greeks. Remember the four generals from Alexander? So it was, I guess you could say, it was a form of racism where they, um, they didn't really blend with the people that they were, you know, they used them, the indigenous Egyptians were Africans. So what happened was the ethnic Greeks refused to speak demotic or use, that's demotic, not demonic, uh, or they refused to use hieroglyphics. So when they used their, they had their steels, S-T-E-L-E, if you could put up the third image of the Rosetta Stone, right? I actually can read Greek, but you look and you see that this is, these are hieroglyphics. This is, a, this is another great one. We, they found this, I think it's in a British museum now. Well, how do you know, Pastor Joe? Because you can go to, if you go to England, you'll find all this stuff. If you go to Iraq, the ones that ISIS didn't destroy, you'll find all this stuff. So you have, for many years, the uh, Western world was at a, you know, hieroglyphics were old and, and nobody really used them anymore. And well, how do we translate hieroglyphics? And to the Rosetta Stone, which the f popular company that teaches you to learn languages comes from, that's their name. But if you could see that, you know, there's images of birds and snakes, and these are hieroglyphics. This is Demotic, and this is Greek. Well, Greek was known, so they used Greek to translate hieroglyphics. Pretty smart. So now we can understand hieroglyphics because of the Rosetta Stone. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty cool. I, I just get into this. Can you tell? <laughs> I think I might. I don't know. So the steels, all right? All right, so... The steels, S-T-E-L-E, were monuments, obelisks, and they were in these three languages. What's interestingly enough is Ptolemy V actually made, he, you know, I'm sure he didn't do it himself, but he created the Rosetta Stone, and it was a document. It was an Egyptian document. Uh, this is nothing short of amazing. Now, let me go to verse 18. And this he shall turn his face... After this, he shall turn his face, Antiochus III of the Syrian quarter, to the coastlands and shall take many, but a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end, with, and with this reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. So this is where we're going to end, but basically Antiochus III starts to... Would, Hitler did the same thing. It's like, dude, you, you're fighting all the allies, now you're going to invade Russia. What do you think? You think you have endless men and supplies? These, these leaders get so... Um, crazed, become megalomaniacs. Antiochus III, he's fighting with the Egyptians. He, he goes to the east and fights all the way to India. Then he goes and he looks at the coastlands and he starts messing with the Romans. And something happens where he's really put in his place by the Romans and then they give him ultimatums. 
So it really, at some point, it stops his conquest. But there's a lot of information here. And I was, as I was studying Daniel 11, um, I just was looking through history. I had my Word document. I have a, a wide uh, computer screen. I got my Word. I've got the Seleucid line, the Ptolemy line, history, and I'm, I'm just going back and forth as I'm putting the message together. So there's a lot of information. Don't expect you to know it verbatim, but just, it's just another way to prove that God's Word is, is, is wonderful. And God, you know, I, I'm going to say that 90-something percent of the people that try to challenge me, they're just looking for an argument. Because when I start saying, all right, let's open the books, let's go on the computer list, they don't want any part of it. So it's just this stupid parroting and educated people. You know, somebody could be super educated and not have common sense. They heard it from this person. They, they, they saw it on CNN. All right, well, let's, let's go into actual facts here and not some pinhead on TV telling you that he thinks Christianity is a fairy tale. Let's go into it. And the, the goal is to lead them to Christ so that they can be saved as well. I can tell you this, that you can trust God's word because he gives detail in advance. He does a lot of things and he proves himself. And even the way he does it is fascinating. Think about this. Did he provide names? Did he provide locations? Did I read any of that stuff? The answer is no. God doesn't provide too much so that humans can read it and they can go, oh, I'm going to alter human history. So there's, there's vagueness to it. Only after the events happen can we take it. And it's almost like when you take a, a template and you don't understand what you're reading and you put the template over it and it clears up everything because it's got, you know, it, it's... it's um, it's a key, so to speak. It gives you the key to what you're reading. So he doesn't provide too much detail to not allow humans to alter biblical history, but he provides just enough detail so that the student of the word, if he or she is interested, can find answers if they seek it. That's fascinating. It's just the right amount, right? It's just the right amount that he does. There's still a God. There's, I mean, there's still a God. There's still a lot to go to, and I would encourage you to get to know this so that you can better be um, uh, prepared for when it's your turn and God taps you on the shoulder and says, that person in the waiting room, go talk to them. You'd be, you'd be surprised what they say to you and what they, you know, sometimes strangers will tell you the whole, their whole life story. I've experienced it. Wow, talk about an open door. But God wants, <laughs> sometimes it's TMI, but uh, sometimes, you know, God wants us to be, God wants to be involved as much in our life as he was involved in the life of the Jews and in the life of Daniel. My question is, will you reach back and take his hand? You know, for those still seeking to apply themselves, you can go even deeper. As it says in Jeremiah 29, 13, and I know there was a context to this, but Jeremiah says, speaking for God, or God speaking through him, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And that's the key. Some people go, oh, I'll try God, I'll try this. Seek him with all your heart and you will be found by him. That's a promise. That's one of the many promises that God makes in his word, and it still applies today. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening. 
and may God bless you.